In the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus had been talking to his disciples about the kingdom of heaven and the coming of the Son of Man when he shares the following parable. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you have handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you not, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniel Camacho and I'm the guest preacher for today. Um, I just want to give uh, a hand to uh, Gabriel Lawrence for that wonderful dramatic reading. That was a dramatic reading of the parable of talents, the way that the disciples and Jesus' followers would originally hear it orally. Um, now, if you were left somewhat disturbed by that reading, good. <laughs> because the story is a disturbing story, but it's often been sanitized. I grew up in church. I, I grew up hearing the parable of the talents. And the way it was always presented to me, this parable was meant to be a lesson about working hard about being a good steward of resources. Um, it, was, it was meant to be about developing and using your God-given skills and gifts. Use it or lose it. Don't be jealous of people who have more than you, but maximize what God gave you. Now, these ideas aren't necessarily bad or entirely wrong, but they oversimplify the story. Who are these characters supposed to symbolize? Historically, most of the leading Christian thinkers, from Cyril of Alexandria to John Calvin, 
have taken the master in the story to represent God. I held the same assumption for most of my life, but then I started to pay attention to the details of the story, and I also went to seminary. <laughs> um, <laughs> and during Jesus' time in ancient Judea, a, a talent was a monetary sum, equaling more than 15 years of wages for the average worker. The eight talents that the master entrusts to his three slaves amounts to more than 120 years of wages. This is a huge portfolio. And yet the master says, quote unquote, you have been trustworthy in a few things, <laughs> and I will give you more. This comment from the master reveals someone who is far removed from the realities of ordinary people. And this master guy, to be honest, always, I think, seemed kind of harsh to me. And, and when, when the third slave calls him a harsh man to his face, the master doesn't deny it. In fact, he accepts the charge and he, that he reaps where he does not sow, and that he gathers where he does not scatter. In other words, the master's enormous wealth cannot be built without economic exploitation. The specifics are not given in the story, but his profit margins may have relied upon practices such as wage theft, lending with high interest rates, and property seizures. Now, in this time, in the first century of the Common Era, Judea was a province in a highly stratified Roman Empire. An enormous gulf existed between a tiny wealthy elite and everyone else. We might already be there ourselves, but it was very stratified back then in its own context. And now slavery permeated society. And to be clear, the word in the parable is slave. Uh, the, radio the radio edit version of the Bible, or the PG version, sometimes translate translates the word as servant or, or bond servant, but the actual word is doulos, it's, it means slave. It's talking about slaves. And slave, like I was saying, permeated society at that time. Uh, the Romans practiced a very brutal form of slavery, even though it, deferred, it differs in some ways from modern forms. Those who had means had slaves who could be put to work in various roles within the household. And these slaves were considered property, subject to various forms of punishment and abuse. Now against this setting, the master in this parable that Jesus is talk about, talking about is unremarkable. What's remarkable though is taking this master to symbolize God. This is supposed to be God? A cruel, vengeful, proto-capitalist slave owner? who's obsessed with making more money and whose message is that the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer? One reason I think it's difficult for us to, to think critically about the parable of the talents has to do with language. We associate talent with innate ability. And the etymology of our English word for talent goes directly back. It actually goes directly back to this parable from the Gospel of Matthew. So you open the dictionary. That's how we got the word in English. It was from this parable. The Old English word talent is derived from the Latin talentum, which is derived from the, from the Greek talenton. And in the Greek, a talent was originally a scale or a balance. And over time, it came to mean a particular sum of money, what was put on top of that balance. When we, as modern readers and hearers, when we hear the parable of the talents, we think that the story is talking about human talents when it's actually talking about money. And our notion of talent 
is, is closely tied to the master's account and his distribution of the talents to his three slaves. The part of the story where it says that he gave, quote, to each according to his ability. But to take the master's ranking of his slaves as some objective judgment about how they are inferior or superior is to assume that the master is a reliable or trustworthy narrator. It's very easy to, to fall into a line of thinking that, that assumes that everyone who's well off is well off because they work hard. And they work hard, and they're able to work harder than other people because they're superior in their culture, in their genetics, in their background, in their race. And pretty soon, you end up with all sorts of elaborate theories that explain and justify why the people who are at the bottom of society deserve to be there. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that there are no differences between people or no differences between abilities. Even if our own rigid ideas of talent have continued to be deconstructed. I, I think it was uh, Malcolm Gladwell who came up with that 10,000 hour rule, the idea that you can develop world-class expertise in any skill, like say tennis or the violin, if you practice for 10,000 hours. Now, before you go and try that, I have also listened to some other podcasts that say that it's not just the amount of hours, but it's the quality of practice. It has to be deep practice. So be careful. Uh, but with that said, even though talent is, is this thing that can be constructed, I recognize that there are limits. For example, when I was little, I wanted to be the shortstop for the New York Mets. And I have to be careful because I don't want to jinx my Mets because they're actually winning games now. <laughs> but when I was little, that's what I wanted to do. And clearly, it didn't work out. And I, I doubt that if I practiced for 10,000 10, hours, and I think I did in Little League, that it would have worked out. <laughs> I'm also a, few, a huge fan of, of Zion Williamson. He's an NBA rookie who's considered by many analysts to be a once-in-a-generation talent, maybe the, the next LeBron James. And there are very good basketball players around who no matter the amount of practice, they, they can't match Zion's gifts. So look, I, I'm not going to solve once and for all the nature versus nurture debate this morning at Forefront Church. <laughs> <laughs> Talent can vary between people. It can be also socially constructed. But too often, our ideas of talent have revolved around racist, sexist, and ableist notions of intelligence, IQ, embodiment, and economic worth. The injustices and barriers that some people face becomes reinterpreted as signs of their innate inferiority. And this logic, which we hear a lot today, it gets applied to groups of people, to certain neighborhoods, to certain cities, countries, entire regions of the world. When I say that the parable of the talents can be misused by Christians to fuel a white supremacist imagination, I'm not speaking in hypotheticals. In fact, when I was writing this, this sermon, I consulted a very popular contemporary New, New Testament uh, commentary by a scholar. And this scholar said that the first two slaves who made a profit are meant to represent those who received the gospel of Jesus. And who's the third slave? He said that the third, quote unquote, worthless slave is supposed to represent Jewish leaders who did not receive the gospel of Jesus. In 1898, a highly influential Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, he gave a lecture at Princeton University. 
and to the theological faculty that were in attendance. He said that in the speech, he said that God loves all of the human race, but God gave certain people more talents to serve as leaders of the human race. The people with more talents, according to him, were Europeans and their American offshoot, and the people with less talent were in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And now I came across an article in my research that was written almost exactly 100 years later for an international journal called Missiology. An American missionary pastor had this to say. I'll share the full quote of this part. The, the difference between the newly developed countries and the still undeveloped ones is not contact with the West, but culture, especially the way their cultures value stewardship. This parable teaches that it is at least possible that many of the poorest of the third world nations may be poor, whether wholly or in part, because of the lack of good principles of stewardship inculcated by their cultures. The penalty is that the, though they have next to nothing, even what they have is taken away. The parable of the talent, talents interpreted through the New Testament theology teaches us to see the hand of God in all these things. Not only can great disparities between affluence and want be acceptable to God, they can be, if based on the fruit of one's stewardship, the work of God. The wicked, lazy servant's poverty after he had been judged was in contrast to the great wealth of the first faithful and good servant. And that was the product of the master's, i.e. God's judgment, based on the merits of the servant's development. The parable of the talents shows us God as a God of justice, making a lazy servant poor because that is what he deserves, and making a prosperous servant more prosperous, and that, if the point were not clear enough, at the lazy servant's expense. So I don't agree with that. <laughs> and this morning, the question I want to raise is, what if God is not the master? What happens to the parable of the talents when we reframe the story? And we view it not from the perspective of the master, but from the perspective of the third enslaved person. Traditionally, the third slave has been vilified as lazy, ungrateful, and jealous in comparison to the other two. But I follow more recent liberationist, feminist, and majority world readers who identify with the third slave and see him as a potential whistleblower in the spirit of Jesus. So consider the life of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a wealthy man. He associated with the, mar the, the margins of society. He consistently spoke out against the corrupting influence of wealth, encouraging people to redistribute their goods to the poor. The section right after this parable in Matthew 25, Jesus explicitly identifies with the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrants, the sick, and the imprisoned. At the end of his life, Jesus is largely abandoned by most of his disciples and friends, and he's killed in the outer darkness of crucifixion. So when I think about Jesus, he doesn't look anything like the master. If Jesus resembles anyone in the parable of the talents, he resembles the third slave. The resistance of the third slave is holier than the obedience demanded by masters who are running schemes. I... I was watching an interview last month of Megan Rapino, co-captain of the US national soccer team. And she shared some words that I think really connect with the parable. She said this, protest is not comfortable ever. It's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to force people to look inwards and question everything they thought they knew. It's not convenient. 
it doesn't feel good, really, for anyone. Now, I want to give a shout-out to my friend Sarah New, who spent most of the summer evangelizing me and others on the glories of the national soccer team. <laughs> and I want to say that I did finally come around to see the light. <laughs> Megan Rapinoe's words highlight another lesson from this parable. A lot of justice work is not glamorous. And unlike Colin Kaepernick or Megan Rapinoe, many people will remain unnamed, lost. They won't, see, they won't be in the headline. They won't be in the stories. They'll remain unnamed like the third slave. Now, if you're anything like me, you might picture standing up for justice as like this really awesome thing. Your bravery gets rewarded with stickers, trophies, with freshly baked cookies and brownies after every defined act, with a very flattering profile written about you in the New York Times or the New Yorker, with likes, shares, and retweets, and a Lifetime Achievement Award that comes with a very fancy ceremony. I want to go. <laughs> but in the real world, standing up for justice often means getting labeled. It means getting blackballed, blacklisted, demoted, fired, and punished. You don't get a trophy for it. You get cast aside by the powers that be and left to suffer in silence. From the perspective of Jesus, this parable teaches us that such people are not alone. Even if they don't get the attention or the public vindication yet, God is present with them. The masters of this world may win most of the time, but they don't always get the last word. And as I close, and the worship team can, can come up as I get ready to close this, I want to say that I'm afraid that we keep identifying the master with God because it's, it's very hard for us to think about God apart from, from, from what's familiar to us. We, we grasp, we, gra we grab a hold of what's familiar to us to make sense of God. We come up with metaphors, including this metaphor, God as a master. But sadly, I think that toxic and abusive relationships are familiar to us as human beings. The, the third slave revealed that the master's relationships were predicated on fear. The currency in the relationship was fear. But First John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The parable of the talents show, shows us how we've internalized the concept of God as master. But this association is one that we need to let go of if we're going to understand Jesus and if we're going to understand God as a God of love. I'll close with this line from James Baldwin, who put it best in the fire next time. He said this, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving people. And if God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of him.